we're going to start off um, with kind of just a, a gentle introduction before I get into the will. I am bound and determined to deal with the will today. Okay, get it out of the way because it's a very, very important uh, part of what biblical counseling deals with, and yet. Um, it is kind of a tough topic, you know, we, the, we have to engage it in a somewhat theological, philosophical way. And we'll try and do it in a way that, that doesn't make you feel, um, you know, lost um, in the details. So, if you will turn to 1 John 2.16, you all know this text. 1 John 2.16 is basically a commentary, a very brief commentary, on Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 6, or 4 through 6. It says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, sometimes it's possessions, huh? is not from the Father, but is from the world. And you have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Um, whichever translation you're using, you get the point. Uh, and we need to to keep this little uh, motto in our minds. It really helps to keep our focus where it should be when we... Uh, kind of rid ourselves of, of the lies that the world tells us. Because um, the world can sound very wise and very convincing sometimes because we meet the world in its own venue. You know, when we're in the church, we're in the venue of the church, do you see? And so church life and church language and church talk and the Bible uh, fits into this sphere, doesn't it? We go outside and that's not the venue, as it were, for the Bible. People don't want to hear it. They don't, you know, especially nowadays, it's kind of foreign. It doesn't belong out there, they don't think. And people that think biblically, their thoughts kind of clash with the uh, trends of the world. And again, the kind of of uh, milieu that we're in right now, which is very individualistic, very trending towards uh, the individual, selfism, it's a new religion, uh, narcissism. There was a, a famous book written 20 years ago now, called the culture of narcissism. You know, uh, America particularly is a very narcissistic uh, culture. You know what, Narcissus, you know the, the legend of Narcissus, fell in love with his own reflection, basically, looked at himself in, in the mirror and fell in love with himself. You know, <laughs> couldn't take his eyes off himself. That's, <laughs> that's our, um, that's our culture. You know, we, we just, we're the selfie culture. And, um, in that culture, the thinking of the Bible doesn't seem to fit at all. You know, there's no place for that. There's, uh, there's some, um, people up the road from where we live 
Uh, I don't know what they are, but they're bumper sticker people. <laughs> and uh, so, so one of their bumper stickers is something like eradicate corporate personality. All right, so they're maybe teachers or something like that. But eradicate, you know, but, but think about that. Think about what is corporate personality? Well, maybe we can best guess at that by asking what the reverse of that would be. What's the opposite of corporate personality? Individual. Individual personality, yes? So the idea of, of a group of people, the idea of society, the idea of, of, uh, uh, putting others and, and society first, they're saying is a bad idea. We should eradicate the idea of corporate personality and focus on the individual personality. That's a very trendy thing nowadays, okay? The culture of selfism. Now, that is directly contradictory to the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview says, where do you put yourself? Yeah, I mean, last at least third, <laughs> okay, at least third, God's first, others are second, okay, and then there's you, okay? It's important, what is the church? The church is a body, it's a corporate personality. Western society and, and uh, civilization is built on the idea of corporate personality, if you abandon it, you destroy society. And it becomes all about the individual and what they want out of society, do you see? So it sounds so trendy, okay? It sounds almost intellectual, but actually it's foolish. And it definitely contradicts uh, the Bible teaching, the teaching of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, put yourself Last, or put yourself, you know, at least third. Okay, if you do that, you'll actually be more content. If you do that, in fact, several things uh, will happen. And you wanted a drawing, so here we go. <laughs> All right, so here we are. So if we say that. It's all about me. So this is our, our modern trend. Then, then our thinking is going to be a, um, a, a, a strengthening of our own inclinations to put ourselves first. You see? It's going to be uh, enforcing our own sinful inclination to, you know, look after number one. If we, if we emphasize that, that it's about me, then we emphasize self-reference, so self-referencing thinking. So that we, uh, interact with ideas, we interact with uh, feelings, we interact with messages that come to us solely really on the basis of how we're impacted by it. 
And the first way that we're impacted by things is usually always emotional, isn't it? How things make us feel. So if things make us feel a certain way, if they make us feel good, whatever good means in that context, you know, so smoking a reefer makes us feel good, um, you know, getting a buzz because we uh, take too much medication, we get hooked on medication, we might say that that's good because it makes me feel good, at least it does for a while, a few weeks. You know, or whether it's through alcohol, whether it's through sex, whether it's through video games, whatever it might be. Um, even living a, a, a life, uh, in a sense, surrogately through somebody else, a star. You know, that, that kind of happens nowadays. It's really sad that people kind of live their lives almost in the shadow of some um, superficial star. Even someone like Kim Kardashian. I don't know very much about Kim Kardashian apart from She's a big selfie queen. But I do know this. I do know that I don't think she's got any talent that I'm aware of. It's just that, you know, she's an attractive woman who's got lots of money, comes from a rich family and whatever. But but she's kind of a role model for a great many people. And they like imagine themselves being her or being, I don't, I'm not up with the different things. I'm sorry, I'm not very trendy, but... Um, but Beyonce or someone like that, you know? And that's really sad. But, but if we focus on me, it's going to be how the messages from outside, how they impact us. Do you see? Whatever those messages might be. Okay? So ideas, usually radical, superficial, foolish ideas. Uh, whether it's things like sex, or drugs, or don't rock and roll, or, <laughs> uh, alcohol. Um, you know these these thin, things, money, you know, and, and riches, and, and and success, and popularity, and what have you. Uh, so so these things. You see, we become the people that, that we, we taste these ideas and uh, really we judge them on the basis of how they charge us, how they make us feel, whether we feel good about it. And then we, we will go back to them okay, and get more from them, whatever it might be, depending on how we feel about it. Do you see? But the problem is, all the time that we're doing this, there's also this other stuff that's going on in our minds. Okay? We don't really feel in place. We don't really feel fulfilled. Because actually none of these things fulfill. You have to keep going back to them. And you find that they don't really fulfill you. They give you, you know, I used to, I used to drink like a fish when I was, um, young. Okay, so I used to have five pints of Guinness a night, draft Guinness a night. That's a lot, because um, that's strong stuff. But uh, always, I was trying to fill a big hole in my life, you know? But the hole was still there after um, I came around, you know, the after the uh, 
the alcohol wore off, the hole was there again. And it's the same thing with everything. So then you have to deal with things like depression. Okay, You have to deal with things like um, you feeling inferior maybe. Sorry about my writing. You feel a bit of a failure because you test yourself by other people. Do you see? You uh, you feel unfulfilled, so discontented. Full. Oh, just say discontent, Paul. There we are. Discontented. You know, you become depressed. You find that you live in a world where, yeah, there are some nice people, particularly on a superficial level, you know, they'll say hi and, and so on. But as you get into the workforce, as you get living life and, and having to roll your sleeves up and so on, you find it's a hard work. You find that you have to interact with people who are not very nice and would would gladly step on you to get ahead of you. Yes? Um, so you're in this world that it's just difficult to live in. Also, you're surrounded by news of, of, uh, just man's inhumanity to man. You know, there's an anxiety, there's an angst, is the German term, that's all around us. So we feel anxious all the time just because of the world we live in, do you see? Now, here the thing, here's the thing. Your life is all about you. So there is no outlet for you in this scenario, do you see? Do you see that? This stuff comes at you in full force and there's nothing you can do to get rid of it. Because you have basically designed your life around you. And you filter everything around you. It's just that you cannot finally filter out the bad stuff. Because it's just there. Life is not the way we want it to be. So, this is, this is the world. This is what the devil works on. This is what the world plies us with. And everything else the world tries to throw at us and sell at us, even when it comes to helping other people, is based on this. Because even altruism, where, where we, we go and we do things, we do good works, most people do good works like that so they feel good about themselves. In fact, in our present culture, what we have, it's, a, it's kind of a very interesting uh, study. We have people in our culture now who are quite honestly, they're, they're, they're very often very rude. They're very often, um, you know, rather shallow, very certainly one-sided and bigoted. And they are very often immoral. And yet, and support immoral causes like, you know, abortion, 
and, you know, the homosexual agenda and so on, and sex outside of marriage and all the rest of it, okay? So these things that the Bible says are immoral things and ungodly things. But these same people get righteously indignant against, well, whichever causes the cause celebre of the day. Women's rights, for example. Or, um, you know, what the, the, the Me Too movement at, at the moment. Which, of course, in one sense is important. It's important that, that uh, women should be able to speak out from harassment. But, you know, very often when you define harassment, there's, well, did he brush his shoulder against you or, you know, did he, um, just say good morning to you or something like that? You know, it gets a little bit silly. My point is, um, there's indignation about all of these different things and there's marches that go on nowadays about all of these things where people get angry and they fly flags and so on. And basically what it is, is it's a, a way of of getting rid of guilt. The guilt that they have because they live immoral lives and because they're actually not very nice people. But they have a cause and that cause they say is good and right and they can feel good about themselves by doing that. It's like a, you know, they expiate themselves by going on a march and they don't have to change their lives. Not at all. There's absolutely no moral response that they have to give. They can be the same people without changing. And yet they can feel good about themselves because they have this cause that they're behind. You know, whatever it is. So, this is the kind of the, this is what the world does. Now think about what the biblical view is. Okay? So let's get rid of this. Of course, uh, one thing I didn't put in there, but self-esteem, you know, is a huge thing. So we'll just put that in. That's the me idea. Okay, so what is the biblical view? What did Jesus say? And follow me, yes, as that. But, but as far as this is concerned, there is deny yourself and that's good. I like that. How are others to be? How, how are you to treat others? Okay. So you are supposed to be focused on others. Okay. Are you not? Would, would you agree with that? Anyone disagree with that as a Christian? You're focused on other people. So if you're focused on other people, then you're not testing ideas by the same criteria. Do you see? You're testing them now based on uh, whether these things are actually good in themselves. Not whether they feel good to you, because sin often does feel good but whether they're goods in themselves. And so illicit sex, 
or drugs or alcohol or, you know, whatever list you want to put there, these are going to be, uh, these are going to come to you as temptations. You're going to see them as temptations and you're going to, because you put God first and you put others next, you're going to stop them at the door and at least question them. You may let them in after temptation, yes, we're all tempted, but we're going to stop them because it's not about uh, what how you feel about things. Would you agree with that? And this, what about feeling inferior, feeling a failure, being discontented? Well, you're not going to be as discontented if your life is focused on serving other people. Because you're not, it's not about you, do you see? You're not going to tend to be depressed when things go wrong. And things don't work out for you. Because you're serving, you're focused not on yourself, but on other people. And I'll deal with depression uh, later on here. You're not going to feel inferior, particularly if you are a follower of Christ and you're putting God first. Why? Somebody, why? Because you're a servant, you see yourself as a servant or, you know, a doulos, a slave. You consider others better, and that's just not a slogan that you tell yourself, but you actually do do that. So when this idea of I'm inferior, I'm no good comes upon you, you recognize that as being a sinful impulse. But there's another very important thing that actually gets gets rid of this, does this stuff, or at least lessens it a great deal. And that is the simple fact that you're a child of God. Okay? Actually, you're not inferior. (laughs) Okay? You're not. You're exalted. You're a citizen of heaven. Do you see? You're not a failure. How can you be a failure in Christ? How can you be a failure in Christ? If you're not in Christ, if Christ is not your saviour, if you're not going to eternal glory, you're a failure. I mean, you're the biggest failure out there, surely, are you not? You had everything down here for a few short years and you blew it. You didn't get into glory. And yet, you know, the nobodies of this world, so many of them have eternal glory. Eternal peace, eternal joy. You're not a failure. You just see, the the biblical worldview turns these things on their heads. And this, by the way, is, I mean, put God in there too. This is where we need to orientate people when it comes to our biblical counseling. We know this from our own experience, don't we? When we're focused on ourselves and it's woe is me or things didn't work out for me and we're thinking about God's not helping me, okay, God, where are you? I need your help. It's about me. You know, when we're like that, God seems very distant and the things of the world creep in and we become discontented. And we start to, at least in a sense, love the world. 
But once we get focused in the right way, we get oriented to others and to God, then these values inevitably change. Does that make sense? All right, so... John says that there's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And none of these are of the Father. None of these are in glory. That's great. When we get to glory, there will be no more desires of the flesh. There will be no more desire, you know, sinful desires of the eyes, looking at things and desiring them even though they're not ours and they're, they're not for us. There'll be none of that. Pride of life, pride of possessions, there won't be anything of that in glory. These are the things that are against God. These are the things that, that meet us down here. In fact, they can be um, brought together under three headings. First of all is what might be called the hedonist urge or the hedonist urge. Um, the lust of the flesh. That's just wanting to enjoy something. Hedonism is about, you know, enjoying things, a life of pleasure. So just wanting to enjoy something, whether it's lawful or not, whether God's in it or not. Hedonism is the me culture. Oh, sorry, I can't even draw an M now. Me and my pleasures. Then there's the covetous urge, the lust of the eyes. I want that. I see it, I want it. Now, in uh, the garden, it was something that was good for food. I know all about that urge. Okay, I'm just, that's not, that's me right there. Okay? I got the lust of the eyes when it comes to food. But, of course, it goes beyond that. It's, it's wanting what other people have got. And it, it's a whole raft of things. It's possessions. It's even people that come into that. So there's the covetous urge there, the lust of the eyes. And then the prideful urge, the pride of life, the desire in this context in Genesis, a desire to be wise, but but not really wise. What Satan would define as wise, which actually is foolish. <laughs> yeah. It was a desire to make one wise. How can it be wise when God says don't do it? Uh, to be something God has not made us to be. Or to have something God want, does not want us to have. To put ourselves in a situation that God doesn't want us to be in. To seek things for ourselves, and which is why I put Jeremiah 45, 5 up there, which begins, do not seek great things for yourself. Don't seek great things for yourself. So, the first thing then, this uh, this evening is that uh, when we understand what we're trying to do in biblical counseling is that we're trying to reorient a person. Yes, does that make sense? We're trying to reorient a person. When we reorient a person to God and others, 
automatically a lot of other things are going to be changed. Yeah? Not totally because of our sinful inclinations, but we have started them down a road of real change. Unfortunately, until we get to the will, there will never be any lasting change. And so we come now to the idea of the will, okay, which I've threatened you with all this time. Can I wipe this off? Okay. You know, some of the greatest artists actually, you know, they destroyed their own works. So I don't feel bad about what I'm doing. All right. All right. So let's have a look uh, here at the will. Just let me get my uh, piece of paper here. What is the will? It's not as easy as it might seem. How do you define this thing, the will? (laughs) In the Garden of Eden, before the temptation, and then giving in to temptation, Adam and Eve had an inclination that was towards God. Would you agree with that? Okay. So it was a righteous and a holy inclination. They were not, um, they were not perfect as far as, uh, their, um, purity was concerned. What I mean by that is that they could be corrupted. Okay. They could be corrupted. So in that sense, their, um, their holy inclination was changeable. And we know that because the serpent comes in and what happens? Their inclinations change. I mean, that's basically that story of uh, the serpent in the garden. Uh, the serpent made the carrot as inviting as possible and uh, it was the desires that we've just been looking at. Now, it might be objected that if Adam and Eve had an inclination that was toward God, towards his holiness, then it could not be overrun. It could not be affected by something that it was not inclined to. Okay, to evil. How can somebody who had a an inclination towards God and towards good possibly fall from that? But we have to remember that the first temptation it's that sorry, that temptation itself is not a sin. Jesus was tempted tempted. <laughs> tempted. Jesus was tempted just as we are, yet without sin. To be tempted is not necessarily to sin. The person who's tempting is sinning, but only if you start to give in to the sin, or the temptation, do you, do you yourself sin. 
you've got to, in a sense, feel the power of the temptation for it to be a temptation. Would you agree with that? Um, some people really like olives. Okay, I hate them. Okay, so if somebody offered maybe some of you a bucket of olives, you might go for it. Somebody offers me a bucket of olives, I want to throw it in the trash. Okay, I hate them. It's so it might be a temptation to you. It's not a temptation to me. You feel the temptation. I don't feel the temptation. That's how temptation works. All right. So every temptation, therefore, is in itself something that you feel the power of. You feel some pressure coming towards you to give in to it. All right? So even when uh, we understand the force of a temptation, we may still not give in to that temptation. It is only really when we come to a position when we start to weigh up our options. Okay? So the temptation comes... comes to us, and here we are again, and if we, uh, if, we do, if we feel the pressure of the temptation, if we understand something of that temptation, then we're not sinning, because that's what temptation does. It tempts us. But if we start now to question, should I, shouldn't I? Can we see that we're starting now to waver? Okay? The temptations, uh, no longer just felt and then we're, we're saying no. Now we're saying, well, is there a way? Just perhaps, what if? Do you see? So we're, uh, we're kind of, uh, keeping it within the sphere of temptation. We're not pushing it away. We're prevaricating about it. And we're starting to hedge on what we know is the right thing to do. Now the force of the temptation, you see, we're keeping it close, do you see? We've made a decision in a sense because we're thinking about it and we're allowing ourselves to kind of, um, to be in its presence. Okay? We're actually starting to allow sin into our lives. The moment that that Satan opened his mouth, Eve should have pushed him away. The moment that Eve, who was not, uh, she didn't do it willfully, she was deceived, okay? First Timothy 2. The moment that she offered the fruit to Adam, he should have said no, straight away. Because there was a higher authority that he knew whereby he should make that uh, that decision. Should I, shouldn't I? But this is the way sin works. Sin works through temptation. We start to kind of question it. We allow it to linger. And in allowing it to linger, we are playing with fire. You know that yourself, 
Okay? What are we likely to do if we allow temptation to linger too long? What are we, what are we gonna do? What's that? Well, possibly, but what's... Yeah, there's another word I'm looking for. That's all true. We'll start to entertain it, and if we start to entertain it, what are we going to tell ourselves? That's it. You see, we're going to make an excuse. Okay? We're going to make an excuse for ourselves. In fact, this is what we're going to do, and think about this as a perversion. God has given us rational faculty, okay? We we can reason, we can use logic. But when temptation comes in and we start to prevaricate around it and, and mess around with it and kind of dip our toe in the water and so on, uh, then we we kind of try to think through, we use our God-given logic to reason to a uh, an excuse for giving in for the temptation. Do you see? Don't we do that? Did Adam do that? What did he do? <laughs> I was afraid. I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. That's the, that's the reason that he gave to God. That's why he hid. Talk about stupid, but he believed it. He believed it. Did God believe it? No. When we make excuses for our sinning, God's not fooled, but we have used our reason or misused our reason to fool ourselves. Do you see? So it is at the time that sin enters in that the person is assuming a position of judging between good and evil. Okay? We're going to be the arbiters. And we decide whether we're going to go one way or the other. We might even choose at the end of it, and it would still be a good move, to reject it. Okay? That would be a wise but we have still, in a sense, been guilty of sin if we have moved from a position from under what God says and what we know God says to the position where Eve found herself, which was, I'm going to decide. I know what God says, but I'm going to decide. What's that realm? Thank you, Robert. Somebody's been paying attention. Very good. That's the realm of independence, you see. That's our default right there. That's what we want to do. We want to be independent. Okay, if we're independent, then that means that we can taste and see that the temptation might be good. Instead of being under the word of God, which says, no, no. So, the will is employed in service to a word. 
a word. Either the word is the word of God, or it's another word, the word of the tempter. Okay, the word of the world, the word of our own sinful, independent natures. And the will can be moved depending on uh, the authority of the word that we are under. Does that make sense? Now, just as a side note here, God has a all-powerful inclination towards good because he is good. He's, he's the measure of goodness. So no temptation is powerful enough to overcome that because there's no other all-powerful being in the, in the uh, creation and therefore there's no possibility of an all-powerful temptation, if there were such a thing, for, you know, powerful enough to tempt God. Do you see that? So his will is never corrupted. It's always good. But that's not the case with us. With us, we do get tempted. We do feel tempted. In fact, Jesus, when he became a man, he was tempted, of course. Matthew chapter uh, 4. So, This is what God says about the human heart since the fall. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. (laughs) You can say, well, that's people before the flood and I'm not as bad as that. Maybe, okay, maybe they were really, really bad and that's why the flood came. Okay, but I see myself kind of mirrored in that a little bit too uh, accurately. Romans 8, 7 says that the carnal mind is enmity, is hostile to God and does not submit to God or God's law, Romans 8, 7. So therefore it doesn't submit to God's word, do you see? It submits to another word. So that, therefore, is the situation of of man as a fallen being. Sin corrupts our will. It has power to tempt us. It has power to get us out from under the word of God and under another word. In fact, because our default is independence, we're already out from under the word of God in the way that we usually operate. We're already under another word, our own. Okay? It takes effort to get ourselves under the word of God, under the Bible, doesn't it? doesn't take any effort to get ourselves out from under the Bible. That's how we know our default is not the word of God. So the will, what we will to do, is all important when it comes to whether we're going to obey God, whether we're going to be wise, uh, whether we're going to be godly or ungodly, whether we're going to be wise or false. 
All right. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who most of you have probably heard of, he was a, a great preacher and theologian in the 18th century in America. He wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will. Uh, it's a difficult book to read. So if you want a hard book to read, a uh, very philosophical kind of a, a book, uh, there's that book. But it is kind of a classic. And there were those in the Enlightenment period and those before him who were saying that the will had to sit in a kind of equipoise, a kind of a balance, yes, between good and evil inclinations in the mind of man. And that the will was utterly free from the mind of man. So that the will could choose one thing or the other. And unless the will could choose the one thing or the other, it could not be free and therefore man could not be responsible. Okay, that was the view of the will. And you might have that view yourself. Okay, but we're going to try and question that. Okay, it sounds fine and good, but there are some glaring problems with it. First, if the will is in a kind of equilibrium, okay, then it will never will to do anything. Do you see? <laughs> it will just be. Because as, as, as soon as it wills to do something, it chooses one thing or another, or against the other, doesn't it? Do you see? So the idea of balance in the middle of good and evil, which in itself, of course, is wrong, because you should be under good, is is nonsense, okay? The will has to be inclined, inclined one way or another. Now, many people have said, and they define the will as... Um, as the will is defined by what a person wills. The will is willing, in other words. But I hope you can see that when we say the will is willing, then we're just describing what the will does. We're not describing what the will is. You, you still following me here? Okay. So we have to understand something more. We know that the will wills, but we still have to ask uh, what the will is. You cannot say that the will is independent of the mind and that the character of the person in whom it dwells, it's, it's also independent of that. We have to say that there is a power of choice. Okay? A power of choice. Now, if one defines the will as the power of choosing, this is where I'm getting philosophical, so just kind of bear with me and we'll get through this, okay? If you define the will as simply the power of choosing, then clearly it is not the will that has the power of choosing. If you define the will as the power of choosing, then it's not the will that has the power of choosing. Do you get that? <laughs> Just, I'll, I'll keep going and 
Um, pretend that you're all getting this, all right? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> we're we're going to come out with in the light, okay? Don't worry about this. All right. Um, you'd have actually a, what's called a tautology of the power of choosing having the power of choosing. Yeah? The will, if you define the will as the power of choosing, then, uh, the power of choosing has the power of choosing. And you see how nonsense, nonsensical that would be? You can't define the will as the power of choosing, therefore. It has the power of choosing, but it isn't the power of choosing. So what is the power of choosing? What is the will? It is the person who has the will. The person has the power of choosing. And therefore, the will is connected with the person's character. Character. Okay? Does that make sense? Did the light come on there? We were in the dark there for a while, weren't we? Okay? Wondering what we were doing. But but now, uh, I hope you can see, once we link the power of choosing to a person's character, ah, now things start, I hope, to make sense. So that means that we need to investigate a person's moral character in order to know something of what his will will choose. You okay with that? Where is he inclined? And by the way, you do that. You often do that in your judgments about people's character. Okay? And you may even issue a a kind of a non-inspired prophecy. I know that that person will do that. I know that I can't trust that person. Yes? I know if I give this person money, he's going to spend it on booze. What are we saying? We're saying that that person will will to do something that is stupid and foolish because of his character. So the will is controlled by a person's character. All right. Is there any such thing as the freedom of the will? Well, yes, there is. But... We have already said, should I put some of this up on the board for you? Should I do red? Okay. <clears throat> so, um, the will, what should I do with this? I'm going to take temptation off. Okay. Hopefully you, you copied that. The will of a person which is their power of choice, has to do with their character. Their character will inform the way their will chooses. All right? It is not an open and shut case. It is not uh, something that you can, you know, bet your house on. Because a person can will in a sense, to be a different character. Yes? But which is what we're trying to get them to do. (laughs) All right? But if 
the character has such a power, such an influence over the way a person wills, then how is the will free? What about this question of freedom? It's not totally free, is it? If you can, because you know a person, if you can kind of predict the way that they're going to choose, then in a sense, you're saying that that person's will is not totally free. It's actually in bondage to a sinful inclination. Yes? And that's, when you look at yourself, okay, you also know that about yourself if you're honest with yourself, okay? You also know that you have sinful inclinations. This, these inclinations could be towards uh, uh, covetousness. They could be towards, um, you know, um, alcohol. They could be uh, towards uh, glamour and popularity. They could be uh, towards, uh, well, I mean, name anything, family. Do you see? Anger. If that's the case, okay, then in a sense this freedom is qualified by the kind of person that you are. And, there you, and therefore your will, what you will choose, is qualified by what you are. So your power of choice becomes constricted based on your moral character. Are we, you're still following me here? Okay. We'll be done soon on this. <laughs> so here's a temptation. Um, temptation comes in. A person has a, a character, they have a, a, a low threshold for lust. Okay? Men, generally. Women, if you didn't know this, you should know this. Men are stimulated by their eyes, okay? That's why be careful what you wear around guys, okay? And what your sons and what your daughters wear around guys. They're stimulated by their eyes. So they, they see something and it's difficult sometimes to get rid of it. It's an act of choice to look away, you see? An act of your will to, to look away. If you have a character that's been messed up with viewing porn... Do you see? Then your will to look away is very weak. Or even less than that, although porn is a, t- a terrible, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's just an epidemic nowadays. But, but, um, even if you, you don't view porn, but you do ogle. Is that, is that an English term? Do you know that term? You ogle, you lust at people, you, you, you know. <laughs> you, you look at people, uh, at women, okay, too long. Okay, it's not just that you see them, it's just that you follow them with your eyes a little. Okay, so, again, that's an act of your will, isn't it? Which is based on your character. You have to will, if you're going to change your character, you have to will against what you are inclined to do. And ladies, I don't know, shopping or something like that. 
Um, but we all have this inclination and the inclination is part of uh, the temptation. Okay? The temptation is not going to be as strong if we don't feed that inclination as much. So when we're counseling people, we need to find out about which way their will is inclined, which means that we're going to have to find out about them. We're going to have to let them talk, ask them questions, uh, you know, about where they like to go, maybe, or, or just pick on up on some things. Very often, you know, guys, um, guys will very often even not see uh, that they're... They wouldn't, they wouldn't call it this, but they're lusting after another woman. They won't see that as sinful. I remember counseling, this is years and years ago, um, a couple, she'd committed adultery. He wanted to divorce her because she committed adultery. But in the counseling sessions, it came out that that guy, they couldn't go out to dinner without that guy following every other female form around the restaurant. And when I was talking to him initially, he didn't think, think anything was wrong with that. He thought that was natural. <laughs> no wonder his wife felt like, you know, what am I here for? You know, I, he doesn't love me, he doesn't care about me. And, and, and she didn't excuse herself for what she'd done. But there's a, there was a problem there with him, okay, big time. So we're, I had to work a lot on him. I didn't have to work a lot with her, okay? Why? Because she'd confessed to her sin. She'd understood she'd been repentant, okay? She wasn't really the issue. There were, there were going to be issues dealing with all the things that happened because she'd done that. But I had to deal with him because of his will. His inclination was all wrong. So we had to get to uh, the changing of his of his inclinations there. Okay, there's one more thing here, I think. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, why don't you turn there in your Bibles? Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. God says this through Moses. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Uh, next verse, by the way, says that God is their life. So here you are, I've, God presents them with a choice. <laughs> there they are, they're in the borders of the promised land, just about to go in, but you got a choice. Are you going to choose me, God, or are you going to choose um your own dispositions, are you going to choose your own inclinations, are you going to choose the temptations that you're going to find when you cross the Jordan.
And we know that Joshua had kind of a hard time with some of the people uh, in getting their inclinations right. So that by the time of the end of Joshua, he actually says to them, you cannot serve God. You cannot serve God. And lo and behold, we have the book of Judges. And if you haven't read the book of Judges recently, read it. Because in one generation, one generation, unbelievable wicked acts were being perpetrated by Israel. Remember, you know, those stories at the end of the book of Judges about uh, the priest and the tribe of Dan and the way that they, you know, they destroyed that that town called Laish and, and uh, renamed it Dan. And they'd got a Levite priest and they set up an image there. And that image was there in the tribe of Dan all the time that they were in the land of Israel. Remember the uh, the story of the concubine? The man with the concubine, okay, comes into, I think it was uh, Gilead. Uh, not Gilead, it was, uh, let me get the, the reference here. Chapter 17 and 18, I think. 19, there we are. Oh, did you? Gibeah. Gibeah. Yeah, so, so he comes into Gibeah and he's given, um, you know, he's given hospitality by this old man, but then the men of the town, sons of Belial, they come and beat on the door, you know, bring out your stranger so that we may know him. Okay? Sodomize him, in other words. Don't do that, but here's my daughter and here's his concubine. And of course, the concubine went through a terrible experience, and in the end, well, she was probably killed by the, by the people, although it's, it's not quite, we're not quite sure whether she was killed by them or by, um, by the guy in the morning. But anyway, he ended up chopping her up and sending her different parts to the different clans. That happened not at the end of the period of the judges. I know it comes after Samson and he's the last judge, but it ha- actually happened earlier in the history of Israel, closer to the time of Joshua. Okay? So... Our inclinations, you see, to choose one way or the other, uh, we must never, never um, just take them for granted. There are not two equal alternatives in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. God's not saying, hey, it's up to you. You can have life or you can have death. It's completely up to you. It's all good. God is giving a command which is after God's own character. He says, choose life. Incline your will to do what I say. He is not saying, hey, choose a life or death. He is saying, choose life, not death. So if a person disobeys God, they choose death because they refuse what God requires in order for them to have life. Their will 
has freely chosen to do that which is evil. So is there any such thing as free will? Yes, there is, but this freedom is in line with the character of the person who wills or who uses it. Therefore, a person may freely choose and yet always choose that which is in line with their nature. And if their nature is opposed to God, their choices will be opposed to God. Does that make sense? All right. So we're dealing here with, um, always dealing with, with the will. Think, think of um, Saul, King Saul. At first, in the story of King Saul, he seems to be a kind of a, a humble guy, doesn't he? I mean, he doesn't really want to be king. You know, they choose him because he's big. He's, you know, head and shoulders above everyone else. But he doesn't, he's kind of diffident about it, and he's a likable kind of chap, you know. But as we go on, we find that, oh, he may have this diffidence about him, but he's got, he's willful as well. And so finally we find that he's sacrificing, he's, he's becoming a priest, and he's sacrificing to God, not waiting for Samuel to show up. And, and he does several of these things, okay? He, what, what he says about, you know, not let nobody, none of the soldiers, okay, take any food. They've just won a victory, they're, they're, they're tired, they're worn out, and they're hungry, and he, in some kind of a holy, uh, hypocrisy, says, no, we're going to, you know, serve God and so on, don't eat anything. And so Jonathan, who, who's, won a huge victory for them, he takes some honey and he eats it and gets reported about it. And what does Saul do in his holy response? He wants to kill his own son. Do you think that's godly? No, there was nothing godly about it. It was stupid. It was foolish because his will was wrongly inclined. Do you see? All right. Any questions here on the will, or have you had enough of it? Yes. Yeah, you can do. You can. Um, you can get a person who says, you know, well, I'm under grace. When you, when you deal with those people, then obviously you, you probably know something about what they've done and they can just be a, a, an unsafe person who's learned the lingo. Okay. And so they're doing exactly what that lady did last week. You know, she was confessing up front. She said, I'm a bad person. Now let's get on with it and deal with the problem, which is not me. Okay, uh, a person can use these um, scriptural um, excuses, as it were, to cover their own tracks or try to cover their own tracks. Uh, so there's that kind of a person that just lost. Okay, and, and you just dig a little bit deeper of their understanding of the gospel and so on, and you usually 
um, you know, if you hit them hard enough with truth, that you'll see the, the response to that. Uh, but then you've got Christians who've just been badly taught, and they've been taught that because we're under grace, that we, we're not responsible for anything. Well, of course, Ro- Romans chapter 6 deals with that, doesn't it? Okay, Paul says this, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, hey, if grace is such a wonderful thing, that means that if I sin more, God will have to pour more grace on me. All right? So I'm actually magnifying God's grace. Do you see again what, what's going on there with the thinking? It's a misuse of logic. Okay? How can God condone more sin? He's not going to get more glorified for for being more gracious, as it were, as if grace was some kind of stuff. Okay? No. Um, Paul says, certainly not. God forbid, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? I mean, it's crazy, it doesn't make any sense. Why would you think that way? That's not a holy disposition, that's not a Christ-like Mind, that's an earthly mind, isn't it? Yes, go on. Well, a person like that, again, you may well be dealing with a person, first of all, they're despising the grace of God, aren't they? They're saying it's cheap. Okay? So a person like that, you can, you can say, the way you're talking about God's grace, and the way you're getting yourself off the hook like that, uh, I'm not convinced that you're even a Christian. You might be, but I'm not convinced that you're even a Christian because you don't seem to be inclined towards holiness. This is certainly not the fruit of the Spirit. This is the works of the flesh that I'm hearing and seeing in you. Okay? So you need to repent. Secondly, of course, is if you are saved, if a person like that is truly a Christian, then don't think it's an easy ride, you know, straight through the pearly gates into your mansion, you know, horse-drawn, and God's there to welcome you uh, onto the threshold without you going through a severe chastisement. Um, there is such a thing as a judgment seat of Christ, and every time it's mentioned, it's mentioned in Second uh, Corinthians chapter five verse ten. It's mentioned in First Corinthians chapter three verses ten through eighteen. Uh, it's even mentioned actually. Uh, there's a an interesting text in I think it's Second Timothy, and it's about Epaphroditus. Uh, is it Epaphroditus or somebody else with a long jaw-breaking name? I don't think it is Epaphroditus. It's another bloke. Uh, Onesiphorus, sorry, Onesiphorus. Verse 16 says, The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. That's Second uh, Timothy 1. 16 through 18. What's that day? That's the judgment. Okay? Not the last judgment. You're not going to go there. But the judgment seat of Christ, you are going to go there. 
Okay, you are going to face Christ and you're going to be judged for what you've done in the flesh, whether it's good or evil. Your works are going to be tested, whether they're wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stones. The Lord grant him mercy in that day. He's probably died. It appears as though he's died because he's, he's praying for his household. Okay, He's a good man, a servant of the Lord, but Paul doesn't think it's uh, a wrong thing to say, hey, the Lord grant him mercy. Now that means that a disobedient Christian is going to have a rough ride at the judgment seat of Christ. And they very well may come away with a lot less than they expect. In fact, in Second uh, John verse 8, it says, let me just read it because I can't remember it from memory. Look to yourselves that we do not lose the things we worked for, that, but that we may receive a full reward. You can lose your rewards. You can lose your rewards. Okay? Really? Well, then, how do I, how do they explain Paul's epistles? Because he's always talking to the Christians about not doing this and doing this, isn't he? Yeah. Well, again, that's that's a person who's not reading the New Testament. They're not under the Word of God. They're not spiritually minded. Um, and you could well be dealing with a lost person. There's a lot of lost people in evangelical churches, particularly nowadays. Uh, you know, the gospel is very often not preached. People don't like preaching on sin. Have you noticed that? They don't like preaching on sin. I have been, uh, not just in the church that I'm in right now, but also in other churches that I've preached at and pastored in, there are some people that, that they won't show up if you preach on sin. That is a person whose salvation I question. Okay, I question their salvation because somebody who's a sinner and knows that they're a sinner before God and they're saved by the grace of God, when they hear about sin, they respond in a spiritual way. I know I'm like that. I'm like that, but thanks to the grace of God. Thanks to what Jesus, you know, and they go off in praise. They don't take it for granted. Okay. I've got a, a little bit more to do this evening. Uh, are there any other questions? Uh, we're supposed to have that microphone, but we forgot all about it, which is typical of me. Are there any other questions on this? Yes. So you're counseling a couple, okay, they're a couple, they're both of them. My will, I just not gonna, I'm not going to forgive him. I'm not going to forgive her. Mm-hmm. I just can't. Yes, that's a yes. What do you do? What do you do? Okay, the question is about unforgiveness, and that's actually an excellent uh, illustration because that's very often where you will find it, because the Bible counsels forgiveness. Okay, but if a person feels so uh, hurt and they won't forgive. Okay, how do you counsel that? They will not forgive. 
Okay, there's a couple of things, and we'll deal with forgiveness later on because it's a very important issue. The first thing is to explain what forgiveness is. Because <laughs> many people have a faulty idea of what forgiveness is. They think it's forgive and forget. Okay? They think that forgiveness is, a person's hurt me, a person has abused me, a person has stolen something from me, a person has um, you know, been violent towards me, uh, whatever it might be, okay? I'm not going to forget about that, okay? If I have to forgive them, does that mean I have to forget about all that? And, and well, they're going to do it again, okay? You predict they're going to do it again. So is this just a little a cycle that I'm going to be put on? God expects me just to put up with it, and I just forget about it until it happens again, and then I forgive them and forget about it again? That's not what biblical forgiveness is. Biblical forgiveness is if they a person sins against you, they confesses, confess their sin. This is uh, Luke 17. They, uh, they repent. They say, I repent. That means I changed my mind about what I did. I was thinking this way. That was wrong. That was sinful. I think this way about it now. Okay? Then you are to forgive them. That is, you are to grant the grant forgiveness, which is that, okay, I'm not going to bring that up again. Okay, I'm not going to bring that up again. Doesn't mean I'm going to trust you again. Well, at least not for a while. Okay, but I'm not going to bring it up and 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 make it something that comes between us. All right. You may have to earn trust back if you've sinned against a person enough. But their forgiveness is that's that's done. That's in the past. Okay, that's under the blood now and. Uh, it's not something I'm going to come bring up, dredge up, and throw at you again. Now, if you do it again, we'll have to go through the same circumstance. And we, again, we've got to deal with forgiveness in much more detail. But you have to explain what forgiveness is, because some people have the wrong concept of what forgiveness is. And the other thing is what forgiveness does for the person who forgives. And this is a very, very important thing when you're dealing with somebody who was abused. Okay? Somebody who was abused, if they have not forgiven their abuser, and Romans 14 comes in, sorry, Romans 12 comes into play here. If they have not forgiven their abuser, they are still in a sense under the power of that abuse. They haven't let it go. It still has power over them. They need to let it go and give it to God who says, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. Okay? They're not going to get away scot-free. But you don't have to keep, you know, being dominated by it. You can let it go and give it to God, and he'll deal with them. And when he deals with them, that's going to be a lot worse than you dealing with them. Okay? Yes. Um, you talk about the freedom to choose and the will and how it affects the character um, and how the character affects our choices. Yes. Um, so someone who's been born again, someone who mm-hmm. has the spirit of God, they have the capacity 
to choose and change their character, which is going to change the choices that they make. Right? Yes. But someone who has not been born again, someone who does not have that, yes. they ultimately are going to have a propensity to evil. Yes. And they're always going to ultimately choose according to their flesh without the capacity to choose right, without the capacity to change their character, although they might dress it up. No, I wouldn't agree with that. They can't change their nature. Okay? They are thinking independently of God and that's the way they will operate until they come to Christ and are under his word. And yet, a person, God's word can do good to an unbeliever if they will just follow the principles within it. Okay? If you can persuade an unsaved person to take responsibility for their actions, okay, and to show them, see how destructive this is? Why don't you do this? Your anger is destroying your family. They can see that. Very often they can see that. So how do we deal with your anger, okay? Well, the Bible says, you know, these things. So this is what the Bible says. Proverbs if a person follows the book of Proverbs, I mean, for a great deal of the book of Proverbs, you don't have to be saved to do those things. You just, just have to do the right thing according to the book of Proverbs. The Proverbs are proverbial sayings that are good things to do or things to avoid, do you see? So you can help a person that way. But you're quite right in the fact that their character will always, in a sense, be inclined uh, towards ungodliness. So you can clean them up a bit, but in dealing with them, what do you have to do as a Christian counselor? Help them face the fact that they need Christ. Yes, exactly. You're trying to point them to Christ, okay? It's not inevitable, it's not inevitable because of what I've just said. A person can choose, okay, to, to, uh, to choose, uh, sorry, to, to go in a certain direction. They can choose, in a sense, against their character, alright? But the inclination to do it is going to be, uh, or sorry, not to do it is going to be powerful, alright? So that's what you have to deal with, with that person. But um, I haven't got there yet, and um, I'm running out of time. But the will, although it is connected to the character, the character chooses, but a character, a character is not locked in to that way of operating. Okay? Not even an unsafe person is locked into that. You know, some people, um, they go down a certain road, they decide this is destructive. You know, I'm not doing that anymore. Okay? They choose not to do it. Some people choose, you know, to... Um, I wish I was one of these. You know, I'm not going to eat sugar anymore. Okay? I'm not going to eat chocolate anymore. So, and they, they can be an unsafe person and choose against that inclination. Do you see? But, a, but hold on, but a saved person, 
a saved person, their character has been changed in a sense, hasn't it? Because they have the spirit of Christ. So a, a Christian is somebody who they have a war against um, the flesh going on. But sin no longer reigns over them, Romans 6. And back to your question of last week about the Romans 7 thing. You can choose, okay, to be under the Spirit. You can choose something that's not available to the unsaved person. You can choose to walk in the Spirit. They can't. Do you see that? So at the basic level, uh, you can say something to an unsaved person and say, this is a wise, wise thing, you know, this is what you ought to do, and they may choose to do it because they're in such a, they've come to the end of their rope, okay? And they're willing to listen and do something. You know that with an unsaved person. They can be like that. And yet, you know, most of the people we're going to be counseling are going to be Christians. And a Christian, you're bringing, you don't have to evangelize them. What you have to do is that you have to stop them walking in the flesh and get them to walk in the spirit. Okay? Right, anything else before we close tonight? Yes. Right. <clears throat> Let me, that's very good. Uh, and yes, you know, your first, your first order of business when you're dealing with an unsafe person, they're coming to you to counseling is you, you straight away saying, I'm a biblical counselor. This is the word of God. Okay. You're a creature of God, but you're a sinner. You tell them the gospel. Okay. Now, if they've, they've come to you for counseling, so their lives in a mess. All right, so they're going to be possibly open to you in a way that they wouldn't be open to you if things were going swimmingly. All right, remember that the problem with an unsafe person is not that they, the word of God is a bunch of nonsense to them. All right, please don't misunderstand what the Bible says. The gospel is foolishness to them. Why? Because they can't understand it? Because they can't, you know, if you, they can't actually follow what you're saying. It's like a different language or it's like rocket science to them or something. No. It's not, not that way. They're just, they, they see, well, somebody, he's the son of God. He died for my sins on the cross. I don't believe that's, that sounds nutty to me. Okay. Well, it might not sound nutty to them when they're at the end of their tether. Do you see? Maybe that's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to come and work in them, and you through his word can apply the word to them and evangelize them at that point, okay? So, yeah, I mean, if, don't don't think, 
there is a teaching, it's particularly in reformed circles, okay, particularly in reformed circles, they almost treat the Bible as if it's only written for the elect, okay? That's not true, okay? That's not true. The Bible is the word of God to everybody. We're all creatures of God, Okay? We're all responsible. Somebody hears the word of God, they're responsible to, re- to react to it the right way. And God will judge them for it. Okay? So this idea that, that, uh, the, the Bible's just for the elect, you know, that's a, again, that's a human construction. And we don't hold to that. No, the Bible is the word of God to every man. And that's why you can use it. Do you see? All right. Let's pray, shall we? Father, I know that uh, this this idea of uh, the will and defining the will and uh, linking it to a person's character, and yet they're still being, in a sense, free to use it, responsible to use it, it can be a little bit difficult. And yet, uh, Lord, we need to understand it if we're going to understand people. And uh, if we don't get to the will, we don't help a person change. And uh, particularly, Lord, we're dealing with your saints, ministering in your church. And uh, Father, we need to be wise enough to know that we are in a spiritual battle and that uh, people have imbibed uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And uh, these are the things in the world, and they're contrary to you, but they've, uh, they've been shaped by them, and uh, their will has been inclined by these things. And we have to um, locate where the will has been influenced and... Um, Try and get them to change their character, to do that, those things which are righteous in your sight. To have righteous and godly habits of thought so that they will will to do the right thing. And so help us, Father, to be aware of this and certainly help us to do this in our own lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.